do. I mean, it wasn't until the last 20 years that we discovered this little thing called nanoparticles, right? And so uh, it, it wasn't only until we refined certain things about our ability to see that, that we discovered that they, they exist, but they didn't exist before. Or it might be like this. It's like you having an instrument that can only measure water. And based on that instrument, you say, therefore, that air could not exist. Does this make sense to you? So I'd say, well, wait a minute. Your instrument is only good for measuring water. Yes. But you're telling me then that air couldn't possibly exist. That's true. But how can you use an instrument that is only designed to measure water to tell me, therefore, that air cannot exist? Well, because. So if you're a materialist, you will say the scientific method is the only thing that can demonstrate or prove that, uh, th what things exist. And I would say, well, there's this thing that we believe called metaphysics, that there are things belong beyond the physical. They don't exist. Well, how do you know? Because you can't prove it by the scientific method. But the scientific method isn't designed to discover things that are metaphysical. Doesn't matter. They don't exist. Well, how's that possible? Because if everything that could, that if everything that could be discovered hasn't been discovered, then does it exist? It does. We just haven't discovered it yet. We haven't found a way. And so I'm going to read this story. And this story has a lot to do with what we call metaphysics, beyond the physical. In fact, it's a, it's a combination of those two. It's about how God, who is metaphysical, invades our world with his son. And he invades our world with his son so that we can be put right with God because we live in alienation to him. I believe that when I examine my heart, when I examine my life, let me just tell you something. Even as a pastor, there's a lot that's not right with my life. I was expecting an amen, a loud amen for my wife. <laughs> she was kind. She didn't, uh, she didn't get me. It's Christmas, she said. It was a gift. So anyway, so I'm going to read this story and I'm going to make some comments throughout the story. Because this is our story. And this is a story that I believe with all my heart. This is a story in everything related to the story that is the very life and breath of my existence. And I, I can't be embarrassed about it. I won't offer an excuse for it. I believe this. And you know what? I probably believe this more than most people who are material believe about the material things in their life. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So in that culture, uh, they made arranged marriages from early on. So uh, we don't have arranged marriages here. And most teenagers are really happy about that. <laughs> right? Because your parents would probably pick someone different for you than what you would pick. Isn't that true, teenagers, huh? But you as parents would say, oh, please, give me the opportunity uh, in many cases. But in any case, so, but that pledge was almost like a marriage. And so there was a great deal of commitment associated with that pledge in that culture. And if you violated that pledge, uh, it, it, you caused great disgrace to your family and to the family that you, to the man that you were pledged to. So um, 
So it says, and the, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. There's something about Mary here that God really appreciated. And so he selected her. If you can imagine what it might be like to be selected by God to do this great thing where he would, he would, he would use you in such a way that you would give birth to the son that he placed inside of you. So Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus, which means the anointed one. The whole idea of anointing means that, that you, were, you, were, you were set apart for a special task or purpose and it was divine and it was sacred. And so, so you, some of you know that uh, the, uh, Jesus means the anointed one and he was often called the Christ, which means the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one who would save the people from their sins. He will be great, and, you will, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And so, uh, for those of you who know your Old Testament, Old Testament, you know that this Messiah was to come through the, the lineage of David. That David was promised by God that at some point in the future, his, his, his progeny would produce a man, and through that man, he would rule uh, he would rule the throne of Israel. He would rule the earth forever and ever and ever. And so it all begins to be fulfilled here. And so, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will, be this, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The, answer, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, this is really important. Jesus was not the product of Mary. Jesus was not the product of Joseph. Jesus was not the product of either of their DNA. Jesus was implanted by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. This is what we believe. You think, that's impossible. Well, I'm just saying, look, any God who could create the universe, I don't think it's impossible for him to do this kind of a thing. And now maybe you don't think he created the universe, and that's fine. We do. And that's not something that we will back away from. And we believe that if God wants to place his son in Mary in such a way so that this, this person who is born is both fully God and fully man, and you think, well, why is that important? Why is it important that he be both fully God and fully man? Because there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness without uh, a penalty being paid. And the only way that penalty could be paid is if there was a perfect sacrifice that was sinless, without blemish, without spot. So Jesus is called the Lamb of God for this very reason. He was the firstborn. In the same way in the Old Testament that they would take the firstborn of every animal that was without blemish or without spot. And they would sacrifice that, sacrifice that animal for, for, great, for, for great sins that had been committed. So Jesus was the firstborn. 
He was flawless. He was perfect. He didn't have the original sin of his father, Joseph, or the original sin of Mary. He was sinless because he was implanted there by the Holy Spirit. That's why that's so important. That's why it's so important that they say that she was a virgin both before and after she gave birth to Jesus. Because God did that. He implanted Jesus. Some people think that's a little weird. It's certainly different. But you know, our condition is dire. And so great things need to happen in order for us to be greatly saved. There was also a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped there night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward for the redemption of, of Jerusalem. And so here's this uh, wonderful woman, this very godly woman who recognized immediately who Jesus was. So this then is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want her to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her greatly or quietly. And so this is significant because in that culture, if a woman was found to be with child outside of marriage, according to the law at the time, it, she could have been taken outside the city and stoned to death. Uh, things were pretty severe back then. And Joseph didn't want her to subject her to that or subject to her, her to that to some great, she and her family to some great disgrace. And so he was going to break off the, the, um, the pledge quietly uh, so that that would not happen. He was compassionate. He was kind. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Not from a man, from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give, his give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And that prophet was Isaiah, 600 years before. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So, in those days then, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to, the, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register, by the way, in that culture, everybody knew who was related to who. And, you could, and they could go all the way back for generations. We can't follow, we don't even know who our second cousin is. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't give you the names of my second cousins. I really could not. But they can. They know all the way back who was related to. It's very, it's very important to them. And so, um, and so going to the, the town of David 
which was their ancestral town, was, was how they, they fulfilled their obligation to uh, obey the census that was being taken. So he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, they came, there the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, uh, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now this is kind of an interesting thing that I just want to spend a few minutes on. And some of you know, we've talked about this before. I'll just go ahead to the next slide if you would. Um, uh, to the next slide. Yeah, keep going. There we go. So that's kind of like what a house looked like. Uh, it still does. They have some houses there that are 2,000 years old. And they look sort of like this. And so... Um, in the King James Version, the, the idea that Jesus was born in a stable, in a barn, uh, sort of a, an outhouse, a house outside, uh, a place outside of the house, uh, really kind of originated in England because of how they chose to interpret the word, um, uh, there was no room for them in the inn. So as you can see there on the far right, there was a guest room called the Cataluma. And what's really, and the word in the Greek there in the New Testament is kataluma. The word pandokian is a word for inn, a place that you would stay if you were traveling. That word does not exist in this particular text. And so, uh, so there was some confusion there uh, at the time, and that's how we got that tradition that Jesus was born kind of like in a barn or a stable. But this, given this then, because the census was taking place, there were a lot of people on the road and people staying in homes. And so there were probably a lot of people in that particular house, and maybe some elderly people staying in the Cataluma. And so the only place left for Mary and Joseph would have been in the family living room. And next to the family living room, right next to it would have been a stable. They oftentimes brought barn animals inside, sort of the house. And there was like a, go to the next one if you would. You can see there that there are steps that go down into the stable, and they would put stable animals in that room there to help heat the house on cold winter nights. And so Mary gave birth to Jesus, probably in that family living area, but placed him in that manger which connected the family living area to the stable area. And that's probably what was going on there. Okay, so, uh, so he was born, he was not, there was no room in the Cataluma, there was no room in the guest room. So, again, in that culture, if a woman was pregnant and she went to her ancestral town and nobody took her in, that would, that would be a great scandal. No one in that town would ever think of doing that. Somebody in that town would take her in. And somebody did take them in, but those were the circumstances surrounding that. So the text goes on. Now, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. The word is, the word is shalom in the Hebrew. Shalom. 
And so, uh, and it's a very powerful word. It means much more than what we mean by peace. Peace, in terms of what we mean, is a cessation of violence or war. This word here, peace, is much more, it's much more bigger than that, much more fulfilling than that. And so, uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So, this is the interesting thing about this particular story. So, you have angels who appear to shepherds, who in that culture were the lowest of the low on the social strata. And they were the lowest of the low on the social strata because of the kind of work that they did. They were always covered in blood. They were always covered in manure. They were always dirty. Uh, they were never ceremonial clean. And so, um, interestingly enough, Pharisees were the ones who, who really owned a lot of the sheep and a lot of the fields that the sheep ate in. The Pharisees, in order to remain ceremonial clean, didn't want to deal with the sheep. So they would hire shepherds. And the shepherds could then become unclean. And so the very people who provided the animals for the sacrifices in the temple were the very same people who were never allowed in the temple because they were always ceremonially unclean. But the Pharisees got to go. If that makes sense to you. Um, and, so, and so God is making a very specific point here that he is appearing and he is calling these people who were really social outcasts uh, into the presence of God himself. Now later on I'm going to be reading about the Magi. And the Magi uh, are these astrologers from the east and they come and they visit with Herod. And Herod, who is an aristocrat, who is a king, he hears in essence the same kind of a message, but he can't be bothered. In fact, he not only can he not be bothered, but he wants to kill the Son of God, Jesus. And so God is concerned both about the wealthy and about the poor and about the poor and about the wealthy. Each of them received the message. Only some responded in the way that they did. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning about what, they, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, uh, he was on, on the, on the, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn is to be made consecrated to the Lord, that is, given back to God, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what had been said in the law of the Lord. That is to say that when they offer that, when they, when they consecrate their son, they're also to make a sacrifice. And in this case, they made a sacrifice of a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That is, that is a sacrifice that only the poorest of the poor would make. There were other sacrifices, much more sacrificial ones, that should be made by people who had more means. But because Mary and Joseph were very poor, there was, this exception was made for people of their socioeconomic standing. And so, just in this text, when they made this sacrifice of a pair of doves, it tells us that they were very poor 
um, in that particular culture. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Savior. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law, that the law required, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. And so we see this, really this wonderful guy, this very godly guy named Simeon, um, who knew enough of the Old Testament that he knew that this Messiah, this, this promised Messiah was coming and that God said to him that he would not die before he would see him. This is an example of how the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And Simeon saw the Old Testament revealed in New Testament times. He saw the Son of God that had been promised from Genesis 3.15 forward. Some of you might think that all this is very haphazard, but it's not. From Genesis forward, for 1,500 years, um, there's, this, there's this progression of how God uh, consistently um, reveals his plan to save humankind from their sins. And so it begins to co coalesce here in the birth of Jesus Christ. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, but a, a sword will pierce your own heart too. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now, see, this is ironic. Clearly, Herod was in the know. He knew that this Christ, this Savior, was going to be born, but he wasn't interested. So he sent them, the Magi, to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I may too may, so that I too may go and worship him. He was being deceptive. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until they stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened up their treasures and presented gifts of gold, which is insignificant for king, and incense, which is significant of that of being a priest, and of myrrh for that 
which is significant in terms of what is used for a person when they die. And so even in the gifts that were given to Jesus, there is this sense of prophecy, this sense of his purpose and what would happen. So this is our story. John says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through, all, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Some of us understand this story. Some of us don't understand this story. And what John is saying is that for those of us who don't understand the story, they might be living in darkness. And for those who do, they might be living in light. And so I just want to encourage you and call you uh, to reconsider again what your, what your understanding of who Jesus is and what he should mean to us and to you. We understand Jesus to be the Son of God who was born fully God and fully man so that as fully God and fully man, he could be the kind of sacrifice that we would need, the perfect sacrifice to save us from our sins. And so, although Christmas is very special to us, we understand that it's the second greatest of all the holidays. The first greatest of all the holidays is Resurrection Sunday. It is Easter. It is, uh, it is, uh, it's, uh, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, that time is when we really observe and understand what Jesus as the Son of God has done for us. So, as we prepare then uh, for the Lord's Supper, because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this evening, I want to read then the Nicene Creed. This creed is uh, about 1,600 years old. It is what the church has rallied itself around for during that time. This is what we believe. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, this is your faith statement. This says it in a very succinct fashion about what we believe about Jesus, the Son of God, who was born 2,000 years ago. So let's read together. In fact, let's stand and read together. <clears throat> 